0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Good morning. It's time now to turn to our words, and this morning's reading is taken from Nehemiah chapter 12. We're going to begin to read at verse 27 and work through to 13 verse 3. And in the church bibles that can be found on page 497. So that's Nehemiah chapter 12, beginning to read verse 27 on page 497. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The musicians also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Nepotophites, from Beth Gilgal, and from the area of Jeba and Asmaveth. For the musicians had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right towards the dung gate. Hoshiah and half the leaders of Judah followed them, along with Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, as well as some priests with trumpets, and also Zechariah, son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zakur, the son of Asaph, and his associates, Shemaiah, Azarel, Mililai, Gilali, Maai, Nethanel, Judah, and Hanai, with musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God. Ezra, the teacher of the law, led the procession. At the fountain gate, they continued directly up the steps of the city of David on the ascent to the wall and passed above the site of David's palace to the water gate on the east. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall together with half the people past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, over the gate of Ephraim, the Jeshunah gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, as far as the sheep gate. At the gate of the guard, they stopped. The two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God. So did I, together with half the officials, as well as the priests, Eliakim, Measeah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Eliohenai, Zechariah, and Hananiah with their trumpets, and also Mesiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehohanan, Melkijah, Elam, and Ezer. The choirs sang under the direction of Jezrahiah. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. At that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions, first fruits and tithes. From the fields around the towns, They were to bring into the storerooms the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites, for Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. They performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did also the musicians and gatekeepers according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there had been directors for the musicians and for the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the musicians and the gatekeepers. They also set aside the portion for the other Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, And there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, David, thank you very much. I can honestly say to you that that is the the last of these long and hard readings. And uh, for those who have stepped up, have been willing to volunteer to read, I am not surprised if it's given you sleepless nights beforehand, but uh, thank you very much for the way that you've read the Word of God so faithfully to us. Um, Another tricky passage, and uh, again and again as I come to these passages, I find myself thinking, well, what is the Lord going to say to us? And uh, again and again, as I've gone down on my knees and I've looked at this passage, these passages i have thought, how relevant. And uh, so let's pray, shall we, that uh, the Lord would speak to us in a clear and challenging way. Our Father in heaven, send your spirit, we pray this morning. Open up the word that we may see you in all your radiant glory and majesty. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, the most sacred part of the coronation service yesterday took place behind the anointing screen. Do you remember that? It's it's a sacred moment that goes back, actually, to the Old Testament and the anointing of Solomon by Zadok the priest. Out of sight, behind the screen, the Archbishop of Canterbury anointed the king on his hands and his breast. And his head with oil consecrating him and setting him apart for his role of sovereign. And consecrating or setting apart individuals or a whole people for the purpose of God is commonplace in the Old Testament, as is the setting apart of a building like a temple or in the case before us this morning, a city wall. And we have walked through this book of Nehemiah together, and we have seen, we have passed some incredible milestones. We've seen the the wall of Jerusalem begun and finished. You'll remember back there in chapters 1 through 7, the focus is on Nehemiah's relocation from Persia to Jerusalem and his initial mobilization of the people of God in the rebuilding of the city walls of Jerusalem. Now, he was, of course, doing this to create safety, but ultimately so that he could turn his attention to the real issue, and that was the people of God. You see, he wanted them to be a light on the hill, to display the the grace of God to all the surrounding nations. And so he turned his prayers inward. And a rather remarkable thing happens. In chapter 8, we read about the fact that a very genuine revival breaks out. Ezra stands up to read God's Word to the gathered people of God and the Holy Spirit comes down in power convicting the people of their sin and their rebellion, of their idolatry and their blatant disobedience to the ways of God. And they remember God's relentless faith faithfulness to them. But He never gives up on them. He comes looking for them again and again. And in that conviction of sin, we see repentance taking place in chapter 9 and 10. And there's personal repentance, and there's corporate repentance, as the people of God are broken. And all of this, in turn, is followed by great rejoicing as they remember God's deliverance and His grace towards them. And we watched as they made covenant together to obey God and to serve Him as His people. And now they've begun to repopulate the city. And that brings us to this moment of a dedication when the wall has been completed, the city is beginning to be repopulated again. And what we have here this morning is a fabulous service of worship and celebration of thanksgiving and joy. You see, we have in these verses the, the, a great procession, procession around the top of the wall, much like the procession down Pall Mall yesterday to Westminster Abbey but a lot noisier. Notice. There are here choirs and musicians, and they are leading the people in worship and praise. You know, the celebration note was so great, was so loud. It was was amazing that in chapter 12, verse 43, and we're told that on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing God, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. And it was so loud that it could be heard far away. This before us this morning is a unique day. This is a special day. Now, all of us have known days in our lives when God has filled us with great joy. Remember that time when you got your first job? I remember mine, 2nd of January, 1995. Or for some of us here, the occasion of our marriage, or, or maybe that's the birth of our first child, or when we celebrated with friends and family. You know, remember that special occasion that you had back there a few years ago, or maybe many years ago? That party that you remember well, and at the end of which it had been such a great evening that you paused and you said, you know, how thankful and grateful I am for all that God has blessed me with. Well, this was such a day. God has been merciful. God has restored His affections to the people. God had renewed His covenant with them. God had brought them out of Babylon. God had given them promises that He had fulfilled. He had spoken of the Savior of the world to come. There was hope this day. There was a vision this day. There was a wide horizon this day. Their eyes had been opened to the majesty and the beauty of the king. And they sang a new song. Oh, we are grateful for days like this, aren't we? Days of great praise and days of great gladness. Now let me ask you a question this morning. Are you aware of making a dedication to God when you gather together in worship on a Sunday morning. Does that ever cross your mind that you're here to recommit yourself to God? You see, God lays claim to all of us as we step into church, we begin, you know, that first song. We have a moment in which we can say, "God, I lay everything else aside and any claim to anything but to belong to you." Dedicating ourselves, all that we have, all that we bring to God. You see, God has absolute claim upon you and me, every part of us. Paul says it better in Romans chapter 12 verse 1, I appeal to you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. It is a day of great joy But it is also a day when the people of God respond to God's goodness, because that's what we've been hearing about week in, week out, by pledging their allegiance to God. They recommit to a life of sacrificial giving and a life of sacrificial living, as we're about to see. Now, in the, the service yesterday, the Archbishop of Canterbury invited us to pledge our allegiance to King Charles. And in our journey through Nehemiah, I've wondered, as I've been working through this text and preparing week in, week out, I've wondered how the Lord is challenging us to respond as a church, as individuals. And I wonder if he is inviting you and me to pledge our allegiance to the King of Kings, maybe for the first time, maybe to renew our pledge. And it's what we see in chapter 12, verse 44, to chapter 13, verse 3, which I'd like to focus on in our remaining time. You see, the Lord has blessed the people of God again and again. He's remained faithful to them again and again. And we see they instinctively respond first with a pledge or, or to sacrificial giving. So I want us to, to consider the first area of recommitment or, or pledge or, or sacrificial giving. We, we, we see it there in verses 44 through 47 of chapter 12. And uh, verse 44 begins at that, at that time. Now, in other words, no sooner had the community finished, if you like, and they gathered worship in the dedication of the wall, uh, than they had instinctively responded to God with what can only be called a physical offering of worship. So they've had this service of, of worship and adoration, and then they want to respond accordingly. And you see that they do so from the labors of the land, from the field, from the marketplace, and they're bringing that back as an offering to the Lord. And so that it can be used to sustain the work of the temple and the work of of the city. And, And this sacrificial giving that is mentioned in verse 44 begins the very same day as the dedication service, but it is ongoing. It is part, if you like, of their life from there on in. As they bring daily that which is required to sustain the work of God in the temple and in the city through those who are called have been set apart by God to serve. See, God was reforming, calling the people to a deeper level of recommitment through the word of God. And friends, as they, as they bring their contributions, as they bring their first fruits, and as they bring their tithes in, they are essentially fulfilling what they had actually promised back there in chapter 10, verses 37 to 39. You see, they not only covenanted to look after the house of God, but also to finance its upkeep. And you see, the reason that this is important is because in the midst of a a revival, people can can sort of respond with emotionalism. They can say, yes, we will do this, we'll do X, Y, and Z. But here we see it wasn't just words. They were actually desiring to, to live out that which they said that they would do in worship to God from a couple of chapters beforehand. See, what we've got here before us this morning is genuine reform that is taking place amongst the people of God. They're putting their pledge, if you like, into practice. And this response in giving is merely a physical, a responsive act of love to God's goodness within the the greatest service of worship that was taking place. Look down again, if you would, please, at the text, verse 45. The priests and the Levites perform the service of their God and the service of purification. You see, the physical giving is an overflow of a spiritual transformation. In other words, the priests and the Levites, they were leading the people In prayer and worship, they were leading them in sacrifice. They were leading them in the explanation of what the sacrifice, the physical sacrifice, represents. And they were reading the word. They were preaching the word, explaining it to them. And then in verses 45 and 46, we see that they're joined by the musicians and the gatekeepers. Again, faithfully ministering to them through songs of praise and songs of thanksgiving. See, all of this, all of this service of worship is designed to reorientate the gaze of the people toward God Himself. You see, when you fix your heart on God, God fixes your heart. Now, one of the things that has struck me anew over this last couple of weeks as we spent time in these final chapters of Nehemiah is that every generation of the church stands on the shoulders of those who have gone before them. I've been thinking a great deal about Philip Hacking and his legacy and the legacy of those who ministered alongside him. Many of your parents... Or grandparents. You now, we have as a church very deep roots in our parish. Many of these streets and these homes are filled with Christians or people who have had close associations with us as a church over the year. And there may be some here this morning, and it's lovely to see you. And I wonder if you've noticed, when we were going through chapter 11 and 12 last week, how Nehemiah, almost very deliberately, he anchors the people and the message with the past. Speaking about events that took place, speaking about the names of those in generations of a bygone era. Like the way, do you remember, in chapter 11, verse 6, he, he rooted that the men of standing, the men of valor, in their ancestor, Perez. And we actually have here a further example. I mean, I love how Nehemiah anchors what they're doing at the temple with the priests and with the Levites, with Israel's past. Notice how he speaks about the tradition of music and song going back to David and to Asaph, the writer of Psalms, verse 46. And he does the same with the sacrificial giving, looking to encourage them to, to model the example of their parents, verse 47. So in the days of Zerubbabel, that's a generation earlier, And of Nehemiah, that's the current generation, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the work of God in the house of God. And they also set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. Once again, tracing their history. See, Nehemiah here is trying to remind them that this is not something new. This sacrificial giving is something that is part of the order of which God has ordained to be worshipped. See, friends, as we gather in worship this morning, we never gather independently of what God has done through the course of human history. We're actually building on the shoulders of those who've gone before us, and we're reminded in passages like this of the mercy and the kindness of God to build the church through good times and through tough times to build the church, to cleanse sinners, and to faithfully preserve the gospel in every generation. And that really is why they are celebrating in verses 27 through 43. They're celebrating and rejoicing and giving thanks and giving praise to God, not just because of the completion and the dedication of the wall, but because they are reminded that it has taken previous generations to get them to this point where they could see the hand of God. Of God at work. And that brings us to our second point. And I want us to notice in the text. Because it's not just our giving. But in actual fact it's our entire lives. That the Lord invites us to sacrifice. And so the second area of reform we see. Or or the second area in which they instinctively respond with a pledge. Is to sacrificial living. Verse 1 of chapter 12, chapter 13, sorry. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people. And it's it's generally agreed here amongst commentators that the the phrase in uh, in verse 1 does not carry exactly the the same period of time that is mentioned in verse 44. So here, really, it's more of a sort of a loose expression of time. Sort of around that time or at that time, these things took place. In other words... Having completed and dedicated the wall, what we see here is that the people of God, they're so hungry for God and they're so hungry to know him that they're gathering, it seems, daily to sit under the reading and the preaching of God's word. And it's in that ordinary, regular reading, preaching of the word that in verses 1 through 3, we realize that they're cut to the heart once again. You see, that's the power of the word, to pierce the heart, the human heart, to bring us to a place of repentance and dependence. And now as they're reading, we see here, we know that in verse 1 it says that they're reading from the book of Moses. And more particularly, we know that it is from Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 through 5, because the verses here in verses 1 to 3 are almost a direct quote from that passage in Deuteronomy 23. And as they're they're reading, they come across this little detail. That no Ammonite and no Moabite is allowed to enter the assembly of God. Why? Well, look at verse 2. Because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. And our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. So what's going on here? It's one of those tricky little bits of scripture, and you're just wondering, what's going on here? I'm sure you're wondering that. Well, the historical backdrop to this passage actually goes right back to Numbers chapters 22 to 25. And I'm going to read that this morning. The time's not with us, but you might find it interesting enough to go home and, and read it yourselves. And in Numbers 22 to 25, it's the narrative of Balaam and his talking donkey. Remember it from Sunday school? And uh, so you may well know the story quite well. Effectively, Israel is on their way to the promised land, but they needed to cut through the land of, of Moab in order to get to their destination where they were right now. And so the Israelites, they approach the, the Moabites and they say, look, will you give us as permission to just, you know, just ahead just and just to cut through the land? We won't do anything. We won't ten- take anything. We've got our own food, our own provisions. We won't be a disturbance. We'll just slip on through quite quietly. we just... Want to save some time and some energy. It's a perfectly reasonable request, it seems. And the Moabites they respond with, No, absolutely not. Quite frankly, we don't want you here, so no. And then of course you get this whole interaction of Balaam and the donkey and how God turns the curse, they basically get they get Balaam to curse the Israelites, he has a change of mind, he ends up blessing them instead. And so for some reason, and there is actually a historical basis for this, Moab and their neighbors, the Ammonites, they hated God and they hated the people of Israel. They were literally, throughout the history of God's people, a thorn in their flesh. And it was not just for a couple of decades, but for a generation after generation, striving to antagonize and, and distract God's people in their worship of God and their obedience of the law of God. And for our purposes... This morning, you know, one could say that Moab and Ammon are really just representatives of the distractions of life at large the world, the flesh, and the devil. You know how it is. You wake up in the morning, the alarm goes off, and you have the best intentions to to open your Bible, to to enjoy your your time with the Lord and your personal reading of Scripture. And suddenly, you switch your phone on, you hear your phone, it starts to ping, and before you know it, you've got 100 emails or 50 texts or however many social media alerts that you get first thing in the morning. And, And then you're distracted, aren't you? And immediately, it takes you away from what you long to do and what you desire to do. And God knows that. He knows the temptation here. For the Israelites. And so God puts this prohibition in place. That no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God. You know and it's here in this portion of the word. That once again they realize that they've been disobedient. And we're immediately told in verse 3 that they took action. Now I imagine. All of us will be thinking at this point that what Nehemiah is writing here sounds a bit like racial or cultural discrimination. I certainly did upon first reading. But please don't misinterpret that. Don't misinterpret it in that way at all. See, this is not about race, but about purity, of worship. God's people maintaining religious protection against the paganism and the idolatry that it doesn't come into the worship of God himself. In other words, no watering down of that which God had instituted. It also actually has connection to the sort of evil ethics Uh, That was associated with the surrounding nations. So that of child sacrifice. And just as a point of proof, in case you're wondering if actually it is racial or, or cultural discrimination. If you read the Old Testament, what we find again and again is that if our neighbors, if they turned away from idolatry and they turned to worship and believe in the living God, they are embraced. They are completely welcomed within the community of God's people. You just think of Ruth, Ruth was a Moabite, a Moabitus, if you like and of course she was a direct ancestor of Jesus Christ and it was her testimony to her mother-in-law when she said your people are my people and my people are your people and your God is my God, sorry. And that it caused her to, embrace, to be embraced by the people of God themselves. So as we're reading these three verses in chapter 13, the beautiful thing that actually should strike us is that when the people of God realize that they have sinned, do you notice what they do? They immediately turn from it. That's the point here. There's repentance. You see, that's what we're called to do Whenever the Spirit of God is at work amongst us, whenever He ministers to us, whenever He exposes our rebellion and our sinful inclinations, it is to get on our knees and repent, to confess our sin and ask for His grace and mercy to restore us and to remind ourselves that His grace is more than sufficient to bring healing and renewal and restoration. We must, brother and sister, keep coming back to his word. You see, that's our compass. It points us to the true north, or as Francis Schaeffer used to say, to true truth. It lights the path with the light of the gospel one day at a time. Come back to the word. It's what our parents taught us to do, isn't it? Read it. Study it. Memorize it. Pray it. Have it with us throughout the day. Now, friends, these changes in Israel, their sacrificial giving and their sacrificial living, you know, it didn't happen out of the the cleverness of their own doing. This was not something that all of a sudden they just dreamt up and they started to act upon. This was very clearly the grace of God as the Spirit of God applied the Word of God to the people of God, bringing them to a realization as they were revived, so also they need to be reformed in their giving and their living. There's a direct correlation. You cannot separate the two. And the second is evidence of the first. But, and this is the instructive part here, because we are not going to get to it this week. There is no guarantee as to how long the reforms will last. You'll see in chapter 13 from verse 4 through to the end that in actual fact, it didn't take long before they started to go wayward again. So let me say this in closing. It's the word and the Spirit that revives us to life. Have you been revived to life? If you're sitting here this morning and you've not come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus, I pray that you will take the time to repent of your sin and come to your Savior, to acknowledge Him As your Lord, and pledge your allegiance to the King of Kings. It's the Spirit and the Word that revives us to life and it brings thanksgiving and rejoicing in the whole of our lives. It's the Spirit through the Word that brings personal and corporate reformation where we are continuously being sanctified and reformed to reflect that of the Word itself. And God allows us to remember, to read, to reflect, to rediscover, to repent, and to rejoice, especially as we remember and as we reflect upon the sacrificial giving of God in the giving of His own Son. What greater sacrificial gift could there have been than in the Lord Jesus Christ taking on human flesh? Leaving the comfort and the coziness of heaven. Being born as a babe. Becoming a man in all the limitations and the weakness that that he would bring. Dwelling amongst us. Knowing ultimately that he would pay the price for all repentant sinners who would come to God. And make possible the reception of the grace of God. And in addition to that, not only do we remember the gift of the Lord Jesus' sacrifice, in addition to that, we remember and reflect on the sacrificial living of Christ. A man, remember, who had no home. No place to lay his head. A man who lived through torture and rejection and disappointment and hardship. And he lived a perfectly righteous life so that when he dies... He takes on him our sin and all who will come to him will be clothed in righteousness. It's the great exchange, the great gift of salvation. There is no greater sacrificial gift or sacrificial life that has been lived than the one that Jesus Christ offered. So let me ask each one of you this morning. Will you pledge your allegiance to the King of Kings? This coronation weekend, we hear the bells. We're reminded, aren't we, of yesterday. Will we bow the knee to King Jesus and offer all of ourselves as a living sacrifice And together say as God's people, not my will, but your will be done. Amen.